Britain's Conversation. This is LBC with Eddie Mayer. It's Friday, it's a quarter to five, it's Simon Marks's American Week. Eddie, as we were all preparing to tuck into our Easter eggs last week, President Biden was once again upping the ante in the war of words with Vladimir Putin. The scene, the political battleground state of Iowa, where the president journeyed in an effort to assure American voters that he's doing everything he can to protect them from the scourge of inflation, and especially from the rising price of petrol at the pumps. To help deal with this Putin price hike, I've authorized the release of one million barrels per day for the next six months from our strategic petroleum reserve. This is by far the largest release of our national reserve in history. But he went further than simply uncorking America's emergency supply of oil. Not for the first time since the Russians invaded Ukraine, he also left reporters wondering if he was making policy up on the fly. Your family budget, your ability to fill up your tank, none of it should hinge on whether a dictator declares war and commits genocide and half the world away. Genocide. It's a big accusation and one that senior administration officials had just days earlier insisted the US was not ready to hurl in the Kremlin's direction. Not least because the president's very own Secretary of State indicated that genocide investigations take time. They need to be painstakingly methodical, evidence-driven, supported by witness testimony and forensically gathered facts. So once again, White House reporters were left scrambling. Did the president really mean it? I called it genocide because it's become clearer and clearer that Putin is just trying to wipe out the idea of even being able to be a Ukrainian. And uh, the, mount, the evidence is mounting. It's different than it was last week. The more evidence is coming out of the literally the horrible things that the Russians have done in Ukraine. We'll let the lawyers decide internationally whether or not it qualifies, but it sure seems that way to me. So he did mean it, even if he conceded at the end there that there's a bit of a formal process ahead that could reach a different conclusion. But the thing about words like genocide is that when they're used, they can quickly have unforeseen political consequences. I think those of us in Congress who have a critical role in setting foreign policy uh, and in advising uh, the president in terms of his decisions as commander in chief uh, need to look clearly uh, at the level of brutality. This is a moment of enormous challenge for all of us. Senator Chris Coons, like Joe Biden, he's a Democrat from Delaware, and he's so close to the president that at one point he was tipped to become Secretary of State. But on CBS News last weekend, he made the observation that if genocide is being committed in Ukraine, then the U.S. has a responsibility to try and stop it. And so he became the first prominent Democrat on Capitol Hill to urge his own president to send U.S. troops to the Ukrainian battlefield. If Vladimir Putin, who has shown us how brutal he can be, is allowed to just continue uh, to massacre civilians, to commit war crimes um, throughout Ukraine uh, without NATO, without the West uh, coming more forcefully to his aid, I deeply worry that what's going to happen next is that we will see Ukraine turn into Syria. Mm -hmm. The American people cannot turn away from this tragedy in Ukraine. President Biden's position, of course, is unequivocal. The U.S. will not deploy forces in Ukraine and will only become militarily engaged if Russia broadens the conflict and attacks a NATO member state. At the White House on Monday, Press Secretary Jen Psaki waved off the unwelcome advice that the president had received from his colleague on Capitol Hill. Senator 
Senator Coons is a close friend of the president's and the administration, and we disrespectfully disagree with his proposal. Um, the president uh, has no plans to send troops to fight a war with Russia. He doesn't think that's in our national security interests, in the interests of the American people. But this was the week when some Americans weren't just calling for U.S. boots on the ground in Ukraine. They were lacing up their own and getting ready to tramp through the mud there. We thought we had this stopped in 1945, so the best way to resolve this is win the fight. That's Malcolm Nance, a former U.S. Navy intelligence officer who spent 35 years in the military. He is a highly respected defense analyst in Washington, but this week he suddenly showed up in Kiev in full combat gear, a Kalashnikov strapped across his chest. As he told Andrew Marr here on LBC, he's signed up to join Ukraine's fight against Russia and insists he understands the risks. Are you prepared to die for Ukraine? Well, of course, I've joined the armed forces of Ukraine. And let me tell you something. I've seen more than enough grief in this country to raise my hackles. I mean, I spent years in the United States Armed Forces, and we view ourselves as as an army of good. Here, it is literally good versus evil. This Russian force, they are going around, they drink at night, they rape people, they murder people. All right? That is a force that is designed to be destroyed by people who are, have good moral and, and courage and valor. And anyone from the West who, who, who feels that they have the skill, they should come here and join that crusade. And it is a crusade. Of course, you could argue if U.S. forces had acquitted themselves with such unimpeachable morality and valor on the battlefields of Vietnam, Iraq and Afghanistan, then perhaps the country wouldn't be quite so leery about recognizing the International Criminal Court. After all, if you want Vladimir Putin in the dock for war crimes, it does put you in a bit of a bind when you object to any prosecutorial efforts to investigate numerous allegations made against your own armed forces. Setting that to one side, if scores of additional U.S. military veterans accept Malcolm Nance's invitation and head to Ukraine to join his crusade, there is the risk that the Kremlin might view American boots as American boots, regardless of who sent them. Which is why President Biden yesterday was again putting the emphasis on weapons shipments, not troops or yet even fighter jets, to support President Zelensky's resistance. We're not sitting on the funding that Congress has provided for Ukraine. We're sending it directly to the front lines of freedom, to the fearless and skilled Ukrainian fighters who are standing in the breach. You got to admit, you must be amazed at the courage of this country. The resolve that they're showing. The war in Ukraine is now creating fresh threats for the already beleaguered election prospects this November of the president's fellow Democrats. The soaring price of petrol is driving inflation skywards, infuriating centrist voters. Meanwhile, the president's supporters on the left worry that the conflict has completely derailed his climate change agenda. This was the week when the US exported more crude oil than ever before. 10.6 Six million barrels a day are now being drilled and refined here, with one energy analyst calling the U.S. the barrel of last resort for global energy markets. The president is yet to comment on the ecological damage environmentalists fear the marauding Russian army is causing in Ukraine. But this was the week when the White House conceded the conflict there is likely to be a grinding permanent distraction for the remainder of the president's first term in office. 
So perhaps distraction is why they made such a risible mess of another big development here this week. The Biden administration announced that the Transportation Security Administration will no longer enforce the federal mandate requiring masks in all U.S. airports and onboard aircraft. Some passengers learnt the news in mid-flight. What sent the airlines scrambling to spread the news was a surprise decision by a federal judge in Florida. She overturned a White House effort to extend the country's COVID-19 face mask mandate on public transport, a ruling for which the Biden administration seemed entirely unprepared. Even though the judge is a Trump appointee deemed unqualified to hold her position by the American Bar Association, the White House froze like a deer in headlights. There was no immediate announcement of a plan to appeal the decision, and as the Department of Justice, the Department of Health and Human Services, the Centers for Disease Control, and the White House itself all looked at each other, the airlines, bus companies, and even Joe Biden's beloved Amtrak railway system were all telling passengers to rip off their masks. Aboard Air Force One, where reporters were still required to remain masked, Press Secretary Jen Psaki insisted there was no confusion. I would dispute the notion that people are confused. Um, the CDC continues to uh, advise and recommend masks on airplanes. We're abiding by the CDC recommendations. The president is. And we would advise all Americans to do that. But in fact, that turned out to be the incorrect answer to the question. The correct answer came from the president himself moments after Air Force One landed. Continue to wear masks on planes? That's up to them. And there it is. In just four words, the Biden administration's new policy on COVID-19. It's a free-for-all. Face masks, boosters, isolation. Let the people do whatever makes them happy. Quite a way to honor the memory of the one millionth pandemic fatality the country is about to record. On Wednesday night, assailed by the country's public health experts, the Department of Justice suddenly announced that it will appeal the decision. But trust me, after taking a flight myself yesterday, the White House knows it is merely going through the legal motions. There is no chance that most American travelers are going to mask up again. The face mask judge was not the only flu. Meridian making news in the Sunshine State this week. When you poke the bear or you kick the bee's nest, sometimes issues come out. That is Randy Fine, a Republican member of the Florida legislature and a driving force behind efforts by Governor Ron DeSantis to punish the Walt Disney Company for refusing to back his don't say gay legislation. If you missed my dispatch a fortnight ago, we are at the stage in America where even Disney is considered woke and anti-family by Republicans because it opposes Florida laws that ban schools from teaching children about racism, sexism, gender and sexuality. So now Republicans have voted to revoke a 1967 law that gave the company a degree of autonomy to govern its massive Walt Disney World theme park campus in Orlando. Democrats couldn't believe what they were hearing as Randy Fine continued. They have until June 1st to come back to consider how they choose to comport themselves with the state when the legislature comes back next year and looks at these issues again. So if Disney does not speak out against anything that the Florida legislature does or Governor Ron DeSantis does, as long as they behave themselves and keep their mouths shut, then you might consider 
actually reinstating this special improvement district in the next legislative session? The answer to that question was broadly yes. Outside the theme park itself, Mickey, Goofy and Donald Duck found themselves facing a bit of unwanted competition for attention this week. And I'll play this at length because if you're heading to Disney anytime soon, you'll want to brace the kids for it. If you do business with Disney, you support pedophiles. You support child molesters, groomers, creepy old people that prey on children, child porn freaks. We say no, no more. No more business with Disney. Go with, go broke. Shame on all of you that go into Disney and give them your money. We love our wonderful Governor Ron DeSantis, who's protecting our children, who's protecting our future generation. Yeah, you put your thumb down because you support pedophiles, you weirdos. You Marxists and communists, you support pedophiles and groomers and child molesters and child porn freaks. The shameless ease with which Republicans and their supporters now make false, ludicrous and deeply hurtful claims like that was underscored in Michigan this week. I didn't expect to wake up yesterday to the news that the senator from the 22nd District had overnight accused me by name of grooming and sexualizing children. That is Mallory McMorrow, a Democrat in the Michigan legislature. When one of her Republican rivals sent a fundraising email to support casually accusing Ms. McMorrow of being a pedophile, she'd had enough. Here at length, her repudiation of entirely false Republican allegations that are now being made against Democrats across the country, further threatening to tear American democracy to shreds. I am the biggest threat to your hollow, hateful scheme because you can't claim that you are targeting marginalized kids in the name of, quote, parental rights if another parent is standing up to say no. So then what? Then you dehumanize and marginalize me. You say that I'm one of them. You say she's a groomer. She supports pedophilia. She wants children to believe that they were responsible for slavery and to feel bad about themselves because they're white. Well, here's a little bit of background about who I really am. I am a straight, white, Christian, married, suburban mom who knows that the very notion that learning about slavery or redlining or systemic racism somehow means that children are being taught to feel bad or hate themselves because they are white is absolute nonsense. No child alive today is responsible for slavery. No one in this room is responsible for slavery. But each and every single one of us decides what happens next and how we respond to history and the world around us. I want my daughter to know that she is loved, supported, and seen for whoever she becomes. I want her to be curious, empathetic, and kind. I want every child in this state to feel seen, heard, and supported, not marginalized and targeted because they are not straight, white, and Christian. Remember the name, Mallory McMorrow. If Democrats have any nous left, Eddie, and want to pluck victory out of the jaws of defeat, then I'm pretty sure you'll be hearing it again. Simon Marks' American Week back next Friday at a quarter to five. This is LBC. I'm Eddie Mayer.